0: Hello and welcome to "Live Like the World Is Dying," your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I use she or they pronouns. And this episode, I'm talking with Ipa and Han, who are two members of the Indigenous Anarchist Federation. And we're going to be talking about indigenous mindsets as relate to preparation and prepping. And we're going to be talking about their work with the IAF. We're going to be talking about mutual aid and. You're also going to hear me be a little bit more nervous in some of my questions than I, than I often am. Because there's a, a strange tension for myself as a, a white colonizer in North America to be learning how to get in touch with the land. And of course, you know, learning from indigenous people is both important, but also this path that is absolutely... It's a, it, there's a, a line to walk between appropriation and learning from people, and also, of course, continuing colonization and continuing forms of oppression. And so we talk about that as well on this podcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show on the network. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This is M1MA1, one M1, M M1, a one hente Comprende you
2: feel me? I'm one half a Dead Prez, to tell it like it is, everything is political rap duo. Here holding my middle finger up to imperialism worldwide. And you in tune right now to The Rebel Beat. The Rebel Beat is a monthly podcast of radical political music across different genres and across different continents. It's the mixtape to a riot against police brutality. It's your nightly newscast set to bass and beats. It's protest anthems from Hong Kong to Istanbul to Ferguson to Montreal. Give it a listen at rebelbeatradio.com or subscribe today on all your favorite podcast platforms.
0: So, uh, would you two like to introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then any political or organizational affiliations that make sense with what you're all going to talk about today?
2: Sure. Um, I'll go first. This is Han, known as Du Han, and my pronouns are he, him, and um, my affiliations are with Camp Red Sleeves ACA. The IAFFAI and Indigenous Mutual Aid. We have a .dot org up. Those are my affiliations, and um, if I have to narrow down my scope of political leanings, it would be anarchist. I'm definitely indigenous anarchic. <laughs>
1: My name is uh, Ipa. I'm from the uh, the Kukapa It's where my family's from. It's where we go when we pass. My pronouns are he/him. Uh, my affiliations are with the Indigenous Anarchist Federation and uh, with the Kukapa Kachan Mutual Aid, which is a part of the Indigenous Mutual Aid Network. Um. My my philosophies are exactly, exactly what uh, Han said, uh, indigenous anarchic, not confined by any of the uh, philosophies of Europe, but uh, not afraid to learn from anybody anywhere in the world, especially indigenous voices.
0: That's actually something that I kind of, um, I want to ask you all about. I, I would love if you wanted to explain to our listeners more about what it means to be anarchic in this perspective, rather than like, you know, specifically, well, not in contrast to being an anarchist, but but what anarchic means. I think that's a, a term that more people are starting to use, and I'm curious what it means to you. all.
1: yeah, so that's something that we've actually been talking about a lot within the Indigenous Anarchist Federation. Um, of course, you know, our, our, our name from the beginning was was you know the Indigenous Anarchist Federation, and when we start to talk about Anarchic, we're starting to look at what what do our philosophies really mean? Um you know, the Zapatistas, they they very clearly say that they are not anarchist. Um, they also say that they are not uh communist, um, they are not Catholic, they're not indigenous, but they're all those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so anarchic, what it really means is that you are anti authoritarian. That you are against domination, but it doesn't mean that you are tied to the European school of thought that is anarchism.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um there are anarchic ideas and are anarchic worldviews that predate European anarchism and that have very different cosmologies to go along with them. And anarchic is a way for us to basically say, yes, we we uh we identify with other people that are anti authoritarian. Um, you know, all over the world, you know, if you're a syndicalist in, uh, in Indonesia, or you're an anarchist in, in Greece, you know, you can count me as one of your comrades. But me as an indigenous person, I'm anarchic, because I can learn from them. But I also incorporate my own cosmology and my own people's view of what that looks like going forward and what spirituality means for us, what our material conditions mean for us, and what our relations mean for us.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, But what do you have to say, Han?
2: Yeah, that would be right in line with my thinking. Um, I would just add that um, our life ways, particularly with my people, um, are definitely anarchic. and, um, And our anarchism doesn't pull from Europe in any way.
1: Yeah, I can. I, I, I'm totally, uh, <laughs> totally, totally with that. Because uh, <laughs> our people, the Quapas, you know, that's another thing that's a, a part of the anarchic process is there are elements of Quapa of culture. There are some elements of Quapa uh, culture that are very anarchic, but there are still elements of my culture that have elements of domination, of patriarchy, and things like that. And uh, as a living people in a living culture, there are aspects of things that's, quote, that we want to change, that we want to grow past, and we want to make more anarchic. So, I really, I,
0: when I first started hearing the word anarchic, it, it really excited me because one of the things that I'm really excited about, like when I first started getting involved in politics, the, the, the solidarity with the Zapatista movement was like a very important part of anarchist practice. And it was always very clear that it wasn't like, no, 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 it's not that the Zapatistas are anarchists, that it's that we're comrades with them. And that solidarity and that just like natural solidarity where it wasn't really like questioned or picked apart, it was just like, yeah, no, we're, we're, we have their backs. Like that's just an assumption has always really appealed to me. And I've, I've been always really excited whenever I find these ways for, um, yeah, anti-authoritarian, anti-capitalist, uh, projects and ideologies to figure out ways to like work in coordination with each other rather than, you know, well, I mean, I don't know maybe to me, that's like one of the advantages of being anti-authoritarian. I don't fucking need my ways of thinking about the world to be the yeah, same yeah. ways that everyone else has about thinking about the world. Um, So you all are with the, I first got in touch with you all through your work with the, the IAF FAI, the indigenous anarchist federation of, Federación, and I can't pronounce Spanish. I should have actually thought about that before I started saying that. Um, <laughs> Anakista Indígena. <laughs> indígena. No <problem>. yes. <laughs> um, can you, for folks who aren't familiar, can you kind of briefly explain what that project is about?
1: I think this is a better one for you, Epa. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, so we got started uh, over two years ago now. Um, basically, the Indigenous Anarchist Federation kind of of, came out of some discussions that uh, myself and uh, uh, Green from Canada and uh, a person who goes by Bad Salish Girl on uh, um, Twitter, we had these conversations early on about how we were anarchists, but we we didn't see any Indigenous voices being really, uh, um, really speaking out loud and being uh, basically, bringing indigenous anarchy to concepts and to spaces where it might not be comfortable. to a lot of these white spaces, mm-hmm. um, there are people, you know, like uh, Aragorn and the uh, folks at mm-hmm. um that have done that for years. And, you know, we are, uh, we are basically following in their footsteps, but the indigenous anarchist federation was a way for us initially just to connect together as indigenous anarchists that, we're disconnected. Um, some of us live in, in, you know, reservations that are re- very rural. Some of us live off the reservation. Um, some of us live in in big cities that uh, have, you know, anarchist communities. But you know, there's not necessarily a large indigenous uh, presence in those those mostly white spaces. So the Indigenous Anarchist Federation was created to bring us together and to really start to have these discussions about. What does anarchy mean as an indigenous person? What does um, anarchism offer us? Um, What does an anarchic world and anarchic future look like uh, with a view for those different indigenous cosmologies and understandings of the world? And the IAF has grown massively from that. It's been a great place for us to discuss, to um, shift conversations, to make sure that uh, decolonization, and um concepts of not only uh material decolonization but psychological decolonization can be brought forward to people that want to decolonize Mm -hmm. um you know there's there's a decent number of, of white comrades who legitimately are interested in decolonization um but they they didn't really know where to go or who to ask Mm -hmm. And uh, this is like the first step in that journey for a lot of them is, you know, us helping provide those resources. Um, But again, at the end of the day, this was really built for indigenous people, Mm -hmm. for us to come together and for us to discuss things on our own terms and in spaces where people who have those indigenous experiences can um, feel safe and have those, those interesting and challenging conversations.
0: Yeah. So, one of the things that I think has been giving, uh, at least I've been running across a lot with the IAF, is that you all have been doing a lot of work recently about preparation, um, whether it's like preparation for revolt or preparation for uh, uh, more intense struggle and also kind of an implied preparation for sort of apocalyptic apocalyptic stuff. And I was wondering if you could talk about your work on that and then how, how that ties into an indigenous perspective.
2: Sure. Um, yeah. I think what I want to say first is that the apocalypse happened for us already. Yeah. Um, and a lot of our um, experiences, you know, both learned and inherited are um, going to be useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems. In in uh, present and future times, so um, and also for me on my side of things, and as far as um, Red Sleeves Camp Red Sleeves goes, you know we're not necessarily looking to join anyone's revolution.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, this is it's it's happening. It's been happening, you know, for you know against the Spanish for five hundred years. And uh more recently with the Anglo people. Um but yeah, so prepping is like a way of life, you know? Yeah. It's it's how we came, <laughs> it's how we move. And um yeah, so
1: yeah, and I'll add to that, like part of part of what has enabled indigenous people to, to cling clinging onto our existence here for so long has been our ability to be resilient and to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not, not every tribe is that lucky there. There are tribes that have been completely wiped from existence in my area. Out of the eight tribes of Baja California, the peninsula, uh, only five remain to this day. Three were completely wiped from the face of this earth and uh, the Kaliwa are doing their very best to remain. Although there's only a dozen of them left. And so survival for us is something that we, we have to have. We, it's, it's not a choice for us, um, but it's something that the colonizer wants to take from us. And this is something that, you know, if you've ever um, been an indigenous person and you've lived on the res, um, or if you're an indigenous person and you've lived in the city, you see both in both cases, indigenous people are very disconnected from the earth. Mm-hmm. They're very disconnected from traditional ways of uh, surviving off the land. Um, You know, I've got relatives that, you know, they they know how to dance. They know their songs. They know some of the language. Uh, But when it comes to actually going out into the desert and making a living and being able to survive without any any type of assistance, um, they've lost that way. And it's, it's not through any fault of their own. It's because their grandparents and their parents were taken to boarding schools and had that knowledge erased. There was no, it was an end of the path for that type of survival knowledge. So part of what we talk about with prepping with the IAF is to bring back those, those methods of survival, because without them, we are at great risk of, of losing our people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a choice for us to be survivalists. It's something that we have to do in order to ensure our continued existence. Whether or not there's some great revolution or it just is continued survival for us over the next you know, next five centuries, um, we have to make sure that those skills are passed on and that our people still are given the opportunity and the ability to uh, continue forth for generations.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh.
0: Yeah, one of the things that, you know, when I first started looking more into apocalyptic stuff and like talking to people about how like there's this weird realization that the apocalypse isn't the end of the world. Like it is for lots and lots of people, but apocalypse has happened a a lot. Not that this is like an acceptable thing, but just like thinking about, Hmm. How am I trying to say realizing that North America is an apocalyptic landscape that has just been like settled. Um, Colonized and settled mm-hmm. by people who caused that apocalypse, um, you know, from whom I'm descended, and it, it influences my understanding of the apocalypse a lot. Even just from this weird point of view of like um, ways of life seem to be often what's destroyed in an apocalypse, often in a, a positive way, right? Like the, the the fall of a capitalist society might be an apocalypse, but it's one that most of the individuals will probably survive even if the way of light doesn't survive. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> it's just something I think about way too much.
1: Well, I think that the, the apocalypse is definitely, it's something that is a process. It is not an event. I mm-hmm. think that that's an, that's a, a good way to think about it because we've, we've faced continuous apocalypse marked by several, you know, marked by large events of, of tragedy throughout it. But, the process of, of apocalypse has been happening for 500 years.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that a lot of people's perceptions of what apocalypse is in uh, in leftist spaces is really informed by uh, the the dominance of Christianity in uh, the European mindset, the idea of like the end times, the uh, the uh, you know revelations when, in you know over the course of a few days, there's going to be an, an end to things. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, the apocalypse is something that is a period of time and it may be the end. It may be the beginning and we, we, we don't know. So we just have to basically keep surviving. Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. I agree with that.
0: Do you all want to talk about your own like kind of individual, like preparation and survival planning that you all do that might be useful to people?
2: I guess I could uh, jump in here. Um, I think I said, I mentioned this earlier, it's, it's more of a, a process and it's not something that um, I'm doing one day and then not the next. It's sort of a, mm-hmm. it's an ongoing and evolving process of skill building and, uh, and it involves just being out on the land as much as possible. And sometimes it just means being out on the land and just sitting there and watching, you know, what is happening. And uh, I've learned a lot of things just doing that. Um, Accessing water in tight spaces because I noticed some bees going in this little crevice and then couldn't, you know, see the water. But I knew that there was something in there. And at first I thought it was going to be a honeycomb or something. (laughs) But um, there was water in there. So that was a place to, to access, I don't know how much water was, you know, in that space, but it might get you to the next place we could get some water. Mm-hmm. So things like that, you know, um, just kind of, you begin to notice the more time you spend out there. Um, I think another thing I want to say about that is, i don't know how possible it is um, in the degraded environment to actually live off the land Um, so i can kind of blend prepping and and doing what you can you know on the land um to subsist and survive Mm -hmm. but you know i hope i'm not giving up too much game here but um Making caches is important. Mm-hmm. Putting things away that um, we're going to need later. And especially things that are really hard to get, especially if you know you're in a small group or alone. Um, one of the big things is going to be fat. And one of the easiest ways to store fat right now, you know, in this modern era, with what we have available is coconut oil. Mm-hmm. That's what's available. And you know it has end dates. You kind of gotta rotate your stock and that type of thing. But um, but having caches of things that you act, that are essential for survival and fat is going to be one of those one of those things. Unless you can take down an elk or a, another big game animal that you can render fat from, and which is probably not a good idea if you're on your own.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. So just thinking in in those kind of a broader context, you know, of using what's available um from capitalism and settler colonialism in combination with some traditional skills of trapping or you know of trying to get smaller game that you can actually manage without getting injured, which is another big thing, you know, not getting hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and taking your <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And taking your time, you know, and just paying attention. Sometimes I think the, um, if you find yourself lost out there, let's just say, for example, you're just out on a day hike somewhere and you suddenly realize that you don't know where you're going or where you've been. It's probably a good idea just, just to sit down right where you are if it's safe Mm -hmm. and just like collect yourself for a moment, you know, and that, that habit, that you build being out on the land by just observing things like that um, could save your life.
1: Yeah, and I'll say that that's that's I think what is very different between like the indigenous mindset of prepping versus like like the prepping culture that is so prominent in America. You know, the mm-hmm. rugged individualism and all of that. The but bunker mentality. When those people see, yeah, yeah, when they with the settler mentality, when they mm-hmm. see an elk. They see a resource, you know, when they see deer, mm. they see something that they can, uh, they can harvest. Um, they don't see the deer as a friend that can tell them when other people are coming. Uh, mm. they, they don't understand the cycles of sorry, border patrol flying tests. <laughs> uh, God. they don't understand that the Uh, the cycles are are changing and that the only way that you really know when your resources are going to be available is if you have a relationship with those resources. And again, they're not inanimate. They, they have their own souls to them and they will communicate with you. Um, it may be hard for people to understand that who haven't spent a lot of time on the land, but the more you spend the time out there, the more connection you make with the land, the more it'll speak to you. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the changes are are very severe, and, and I, I agree with Han that it's going to be really uh, – it, it can be really challenging nowadays to subsist off the land, uh, especially if you consider, you know, if, if every single, you know, person who considered them not a fascist, you know, any
3: mm-hmm.
1: liberal or, or socialist or, you know, anybody, if, if all of those people were to head off in the woods – and start trying to live off the land, the, those lands are already depleted. They would be depleted even faster. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, that, that kind of idea, you know, as indigenous people, we, we do need to try to survive with resources that we can acquire in a store too. You know, it's not, you know, we're not these mythical <laughs> <laughs> natives that are, you know, just hunting and fishing, you know, and everything else. We, we also have resources that we can acquire from the store. Um, for us as Cocoa is one of our most sacred things is salt because salt is one of those things that is really, really important to life. You know, without salt, you can become dehydrated. You can, uh, lose yourself. You can get heat stroke. So caches of salt, Mm -hmm. knowing that for, you know, two people, you know a half kilo of salt will last two people, six months, unless you're sweating a lot and then you need one pound or or one kilo. Mm -hmm. Um, those kind of uh, those kind of skills are, are important as well. But back to the land connection, I think that that is fundamentally the most important thing for people who do see themselves in a situation where they might have to flee the city mm-hmm. or for people who see themselves maybe having to take up arms someday. Is If you're going to go out onto the land, you better already have a, a deep relationship with that land. Otherwise, you're going to be jumping off to the deep end and trying to figure things out along the way. And <laughs> I mean, what was that kid's name, McCandless, in the school bus? You know, two berries look alike, eat the wrong way oh, yeah. you did.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So <laughs> that kind of uh, arrogance that you think that you can just go off and, and, into nature and nature will provide for you. Uh, nature provides only for those who have a relationship with nature. So uh,
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like, yeah domination based in like even like a lot of the like survival literature that i read which seems to come from a very like uh idealizing the like white american frontiersman you know Mm -hmm. where you like Mm -hmm. basically just like go into the forest and murder everything and then uh (laughs) clear-cut a chunk of the forest and the only real problem with civilization is that it everyone did that and now everything is clear-cut rather than actually addressing the problem of walking in and destroying everything and seeing everything as resources.
1: Yeah. That, that, that kind of relationship with resources is just something that is lost on people who don't have a conception of nature as being an equal and as as being a partner. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that you can, you can take from, but only if you give, you can take from, but only if you, if you give. And that kind of relationship, a lot of people don't realize that indigenous people we spent a lot of our time giving back to nature, taking an acorn and planting it, you know, even if we may never see that tree grow, mm-hmm. um, taking the seeds from the wild uh, rice and giving some of it back, stomping it into the banks of the uh, river. So that way next year, maybe it'll grow, maybe it won't, but it's those little tiny acts of reciprocal, uh, love that we give back to the land that is, is really lost on. I think a lot of people who see the earth as something to extract from, not for something to, uh, relate with
2: yeah I want to add to that um also it's not just the act of um you know stomping seed into the ground or whatever you know the act is it's a ritual and it's a you know there's a there's a wish and a feeling that goes with all of it you know and um Mm. I I feel like that makes a difference
1: intention yeah I agree yeah
0: yeah which is something that is just so completely stripped out of European thought like modern European thought about that like I don't know um, a, a lot of folks talking about like sort of reclaiming magic and reclaiming things like that is like basically coming from this perspective of like actually caring about doing things with intention and actually like I don't know. I... <laughs> oh,
2: no, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, the more reconnection I think, you know, everyone can do. You know, I think there, there is an aspect of that that can be a little bit weird. But, mm-hmm. um, but if it's sincere, you know, I think that there's good value in that.
0: So a question that I, I feel like I have to ask, I think I want to know the answer, and it's a rude question as a white settler is basically like I came to realize how much, how deeply I'm a settler only in the past like five or six years. Right. Like my uh, early experience with anarchism, I worked a lot in, you know, in solidarity with different indigenous actions and fighting against Columbus day and things like that. Right. But it's only been in the past, like five years that it's like really been eating away at me. This like concept that like, um, I'm literally a colonizer rather than like thinking about like my family being colonizers. Right. And during this, this recent chunk of apocalypse, I've been isolated living in the woods in, um, um, uh, so land in Western North Carolina. And, you know, and I've, I've been in my head starting to build this relationship with the, the nature around me. Right. I've, you know, I spend a lot more of my time watching bugs and like thinking about the different bugs that, That live there and like, you know, not making friends with the wasps, but not really getting rid of their nests and I don't know, whatever. And if I'm finding this deeper connection to land right now, there's an aspect of it that feels really uncomfortable for me because I'm thinking about the fact that my connection to this land is connection with stolen land, right? And also like, for example, the, the history in Appalachia is very this like Appalachian history, which is a very white history, obviously not the actual Appalachian history, but the, the history of, you know, Appalachia as a colonized space. And there's this like, you know, pride and history that kind of ties into like the rugged frontiersman or, or, you know, Appalachia is a very like, um, uh, poor environment historically, but a a poor white environment. And there's this, there's this discomfort where I'm like, okay, I really want to start getting in touch with the land. And also, for example, when I hear you all talk about like, here are some better attitudes to have, I wonder, because there's been so much appropriation of indigenous spirituality, indigenous like conceptions that are then like stripped of meaning and then like, you know, cleaned up and sold. How does one engage Mm -hmm. as someone who is a, a settler colonial like myself, how does one engage with this kind of information in a way that is not appropriative, but instead like, I don't know, uh, in solidarity and an anarchic perspective.
2: Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, we can both jump in here, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there is a good answer for mm-hmm. that. Um, I think that, well, well, as you were talking, I was thinking about how it isn't about us. It's not about me Mm-hmm. It's not about anybody who's alive right now, really, and um what we do now sets the stage for what comes later, and like we said earlier, um, you know we know what what the best intentions you know what happens with that <laughs> but but we we i think having a sincere heart and doing our best and learning to be learning to accept that uncomfortable feeling is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I talk about this, I, I go into these big umbrellas, you know, I go into these big esoteric kind of uh, ways of thinking about this stuff, but, you know, eventually civilization is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And everything that people know now won't even be a memory you know um i think at that point you know who are we as human beings you know there's no civilization we're living on the land and i hope this is a true story (laughs) you know for humans to be able to survive on this planet but i think thinking in those terms and thinking about the people who come after us and doing the best we can here and now and taking the criticism, the self-criticism and the outside criticism and, and all the discomfort and using that to, you know, it's not about self-improvement, but it is about that at the same time. So, you know, whether we can survive, on the land you know is one thing but are we as a species as human beings going to be able to set up a world going forward for whoever it is you know mm-hmm. generations from now Was that too much <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I, I think that that's 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 right on with the especially the discomfort i think mm-hmm. that if you're, if anyone is honest with themselves and is truly trying to engage and trying to develop a relationship with the land, you're going to have discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, even indigenous people, um, Lord knows, you know, (laughs) a lot of us are, 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 more disconnected than, than we, uh, than we want to be more disconnected than our ancestors were. And so every act of relating with the land is, is, is uncomfortable because, you know, it's a, it's a thing that we, we'll never have perfected matter how hard we try. And no matter what anybody tells us um, it's, it's something that is uncomfortable. And for, for non non non-natives, for, for people that are trying to relate with from the land, I can, I can only basically pass on the wisdom of of my elders. And that is the land speaks to you as a person, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you open yourself and you're willing to deal with the discomfort one second i got a border patrol helicopter flying over god damn i don't know how loud it is
0: oh it's it's not coming through um
1: okay good um so if you're willing to deal with that discomfort and you're willing to relate with the land then the land is going to teach you and it's going to teach you your own lessons. It's not something that anybody else is going to be able to give you. And there's no real value in replicating, um, you know, or, or appropriating indigenous life ways, because if you are a settler and you are trying to just copy what indigenous people do again, the whole way that those indigenous people created a relationship with the land was through their own experiences, through mm. their own histories, through their own um, their own relations. And if you try to step in on that, you're, you're not actually building a relationship. Only you as a person can build a relationship with the land. Now settlers, of course, like everyone here, if you're a settler, you're on stolen land, but the land is stolen simply because the people who have relation with it are gone. And there's no more, uh, there's no more communion with that specific spot of land. Mm -hmm but once again as long as you come with your own desire to connect with that land and with the openness and the uh, t- and the uh, solidarity to allow indigenous people to also reclaim and interact with that land and you can build those relationships
0: that makes sense to me and it it's like interesting to think about you know obviously I was like very uncomfortable asking that question uh and but even more than that I've been yeah like I've been facing this discomfort and it's interesting to I have been on some level thinking of this discomfort positively. Right. Because like it's this, it's this epiphany. It's a, it's a dumb epiphany. It's an obvious epiphany. I've known my entire life that this is, you know, stolen land. And yet it still only comes to me more. uh, I actually feel it in a way that I didn't used to. And it, it makes me uncomfortable, but I I think that the idea of sitting with that discomfort as like not inherently bad as a, is an interesting concept and works well with my way of thinking. Um,
1: so I appreciate that. The discomfort means your heart is actually feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's a good thing.
0: So to, to pivot to something else, um, I know that you all do a lot of work with uh, indigenous mutual aid and, and earlier you were talking about how, you know, surviving alone on the land, for example, is a very hard thing to do. And, you know, most of the sort of, um, most of the sort of prepping I talk about on the show is like very actively about like building resilient communities rather than like I alone in the woods can like survive off of squirrels with a hatchet or whatever. Um, (laughs) of the, like the rugged frontiersman perspective, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and so I was wondering if you all wanted to talk about how mutual aid fits into this paradigm of like resiliency from your point of view, especially with, Things the current crisis continuing to deepen,
1: yeah, mutual aid is you know we we've been having these kind of discussions recently, um, where mutual aid, a lot of people see it as a task um, or a like job description or as a reaction.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But mutual aid, <laughs> I mean, even if you want to go to the European side, uh, Peter Kropotkin <laughs> said. It's a factor of evolution. Well, Mm -hmm. indigenous people, our stories tell us mutual aid is a part of creation and existence. Um, All of our stories are filled with animals helping each other uh, or trying to take advantage of each other. And there's always that fight. There's, you know, the predatory side and then there's the mutual aid side. Mm -hmm. And uh, mutual aid is, is one of those things that gives strength. That's, you know, what our stories teach us. That's what our lived experiences and our history teach us. It's that we can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. We can only do this when we come together. You know, my tribe, we, um, we were lucky enough to live outside of America for most of our existence. Um, we're now cut in half. Half the tribe is in the United States and then some of us down here in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but because we were in Mexico for quite some time, we leveraged that to help our uh, guerrilla Apache comrades come down here and uh hide out when they needed to we have uh apaches that are a part of our family history because they came down here when they were in need of respite they needed a rest they you know needed to take a little time off from the fighting to gather themselves and uh that's that's part of the mutual aid our homes were open our our stores of corn were theirs to have mm-hmm. um and when we see mutual aid developing nowadays, it's, it's kind of the same thing. We need to have open homes. Um, we need to at least, you know, if, if you, know, you can't trust somebody, you can at least feed them, you can at least give them a place to stay and you can send them <laughs> on their way. Uh huh. And that kind of thing, that little tiny act of, of community mutual aid is what is going to enable us to survive. If you're willing to, you know, If you hear on the radio that somebody needs uh, salt or fat <laughs> um, and you're willing to go to your local store and, and buy a industrial-sized thing of it and drive it up, leave it on the side of the road near where they need it and let them know that it's out there, that's mutual aid. That is going to make survival possible. Mm-hmm. So mutual aid is, again, not an act. It's not a reaction. It is a relation. Mm-hmm. And that relation is something that we need to cultivate and we need to expand and we need to explore. And that's only going to happen by us talking to each other, by us um, coming to know each other, building those relations across the land. Our trade routes are gone. (laughs) You know, we we used to have extensive highways, essentially, that led, at least for my tribe, um, led from the the Gulf of California called the day. Um, all the way down to the Mayans, all the way up to the Pueblos, all the way up to the Paiutes. And uh, those those trade networks are gone. And that's part of the reason that it's hard for us to survive.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
1: because we're isolated and because that mutual aid no longer exists outside of capitalism. Yeah. And uh, that's part of what I feel the IAF is, uh, is trying to do, is trying to make people... Wake up to that potential. Wake up to that possibility of building mutual aid and reconnecting the old way for survival.
2: Yeah, I'd like to add a little to that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's also ceremony, and and uh, we have a food exchange ceremony, and that it makes a difference in our in our outlook on life. You know, knowing that the exchange of food is a part of life. And without that, you know, it's not an upward trajectory. Isolation is death. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. So
0: what, what kind of field skills should people probably be developing? I know you all have been doing a lot of work presenting field skills on your website and what kind of stuff has you all really excited and that you think that maybe people are missing when they think about, being prepared?
2: I guess I'm going to jump in on this one. Um, What are people missing? I'm not sure, but I think, um, well, it's going to be, you know, what you need in the immediate moment. And I think the very most important need out there is water. So finding ways to access water and then, you know, ways to filter that water and uh, make it usable so, if that's going to be boiling, then, you know, fire building skills. Um, mm-hmm. What, you know, what do people, what, I mean, how do I say this? You're going to want to be thinking about your core temperature. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to be thinking, you know, in the cold weather, you're going to want to be thinking about staying warm. In the hot weather, you want to be able to cool off. Um, so, you know, water, shelter, fire, and food. And I'm not sure what the order is, but you can <laughs> go longer without food, but you can't very long without water. Um, learning to do, you know, like I think anyone can access skill building. Um, um, how can I, a curriculum? I don't know what to say here. But um, there are plenty of books out there and there are courses out there that, you know, you can take varying you know degrees of. Of difficulty, but nothing can replace getting it as close to to um, real life as possible. You know, how are you going to behave when you're dehydrated? Do you mm-hmm. know? Are you going to be making good decisions when you're dehydrated? You know, I mean, making one misstep when you're dehydrated, making one bad choice could lead to your death.
3: Mm-hmm. You
2: know? So, I think it's you know more of a thinking about how am I going to survive the situation and what are the most urgent needs that I have. And then going out there and without putting yourself in danger, of course, but, you know, push yourself physically, you know, um, find ways to simulate stress And um, I'm not going to tell people to go get dehydrated and try (laughs) to find water. That doesn't sound very smart. But, you know, (laughs) how are you going to behave, you know, under duress? Mm -hmm. Because it's one thing to, you know, go to one of these courses that, you know, are offered out there that are are valuable. You know, I think that skills can be learned and and honed. But um, if there's, you know... A medic right there ready to rescue you, you know, that's not how it's really going to be. So, yeah, finding ways to stress your body, whether it's, you know, a lot of exercise and then run through, you know, trying to build a fire while your arms are, you know, pumped full of blood and tired because you just did 100 push ups or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, run in place or whatever it is you have to do to simulate you know, physical stress and then do the activity, you know, or imagine doing whatever activity it is, um, you know, it's sub zero weather and you're going to have to bear your hands. You know, how are your hands going to operate when they're super cold? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be able to build the fire when you need it most? I think, I think those, that would be an area where I think people could focus
0: it's kind of the the context of the skills rather than just the like raw. Like it's one thing to build a fire; it's another thing to build a fire in sub-zero temperature or whatever.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And exactly. Then also, it's just that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say uh, it's it's also important to be putting those things like like you were talking about to the test um, on a regular basis and in varied conditions because you can practice building a fire in your backyard um, and get it right every single time, you know, when it's nice mm-hmm. out. But again, when it's raining, can you start a fire in the rain? Can you build a shelter in the rain? Can you build a shelter in the snow? Those kinds of things are very challenging. And as somebody who grew up in a place without any snow, I've <laughs> tested myself up in the snow country and uh, found it incredibly difficult. My first uh, ever experience, uh, I do this, this thing where basically I'll take, a uh, a a 10 pound limit, um, or I'll take a one gallon sack, uh, one gallon, like Ziploc bag of supplies and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And then I try to go out there and I I do uh, a week, you know, whatever I can carry on my person. Um, and the wintertime, that was extremely challenging. I learned a lot from that first failed experience and, uh, by calling it off, you know, Mm -hmm. the first time it was, uh, it was humbling and it made me readdress a lot of a lot of my skills that were lacking. And when I went out a second time, it was a little bit more successful. But testing things is, is incredibly important. And I, I mean that by testing your skills, testing your fitness, testing your navigation ability, um, and testing your equipment. I know a lot of people go out and they buy these whiz-bang survival you know, tools mm-hmm. and uh, they never really put them to the test over consistent, long use. And if you don't do that, you, you will not know what its failure point is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's useful information you want. You don't want to carry anything with you. that's going to break a week later because that's weight that you could have put towards something more useful. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I think about the, uh, like whenever I'm like looking at survival kits or something like that, right. I've I've actually never found a like pre-packaged survival kit that doesn't seem like garbage. Um, but the, like the big clue for me is that it's garbage is it has one of those, uh those, you know, those like pocket chainsaws that don't even have a chainsaw blade. They just have like a wire yeah, a with wire serrations. Saws. Yeah. <laughs> like, n- n- no, um, just no, <laughs> like, I think you'd yeah. probably be better off with the fucking wood saw on your multi-tool. I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: And not only that, I think, you know, the caloric output, you got to watch that too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how much work am I going to have to do to get this thing to, you know, happen? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Doing as little as possible. <laughs> it sounds lazy, but it's <laughs> totally not, you know,
0: no, that makes sense. It's and like, it's-
1: like uh, yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's like with the, uh, with the caloric intake, I think that's a, it's a really important point because uh, with American survival is uh, like, you know, frontiersman kind of ideology. I see a lot of people using, uh, using axes for everything <laughs> yeah. and, uh, axes are good for splitting wood and, uh, they're good for, for felling large trees. But, um, but in, if you go to most of the rest of the world, I mean, if <laughs> down in Mexico, um, machetes are used for a lot of tasks, a lot of, a lot of tasks because they're lightweight and they get the job done for limbing, for barking, for a lot of other tasks. Um, so, you know, axes have their place, but you shouldn't be, uh, uh, wasting your energy using them in roles that they weren't really designed for.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that applies with a lot of different techniques. You know, if you're trying to, uh, spin a stick with your hands to start a fire when you could just make a bow drill, mm-hmm. um, that's a, that's a waste of your energy. Every calorie counts. Hard mm-hmm. to agree.
0: Yeah. I, uh. I, f- I feel like I'm I've, I've deciding that my like pruning saw is probably going to make it into my, my camping backpack at this point, just out of it being so much easier to cut sticks with it versus an ax. Like, I don't know, but mm-hmm. maybe I need to relook at machetes. My, I use machetes to clear paths and things like that, but I, am um, I'm really shit at sharpening blades. <laughs> and so I have a lot of <laughs> dull machetes and I've like, machete is like less force. And I'm like, Oh, right. Because I suck at sharpening them. That's why my machetes take so much force to like limitry.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something that you just will get through practice is, you know, practice, you know, care and maintenance of your tools is something mm-hmm. that, that uh, we at IAF talk a lot about is, you know, if you, if you do have a, a machete and you don't sharpen it or an ax, you don't sharpen it. Not only is it ineffective, but it's also dangerous. It could hurt you. Mm-hmm. Same thing with a rifle you know if you if you have a rifle and you're not keeping it clean you're not keeping it lubricated and rust free that rifle's going to fail you at the moment you need it the most
3: mm-hmm.
1: so those kind of uh preventative maintenance things it's not the sexy side of survival, but it's definitely the the thing that's going to keep you out there longer it's going to keep you uh, keep your tools actually working for you instead of against you,
0: yeah, and what you were talking about knowing the failure place of your tools like I don't know that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think about even just like dumb stuff, like you know, when I used to hop freight trains, I would carry a spork. I'd carry a titanium spork everywhere, and I had this like gut feeling that I don't like the folding ones, you know, even though they're like mm-hmm. a fraction of an ounce lighter or whatever. So they're like fancier camping ones or whatever. And I'm like, I think my titanium spork is already a camping tool. Um, <laughs> and 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 it's just I don't I don't know why I, I used to really love my sport cause I ate every meal with it for years and you know, it, it's not going to break. And like, I like that about it, you know?
1: Yeah. Old faithful. Yeah. <laughs> what are yeah, some of you yeah.
2: go ahead. I want to jump in on this too. I think what people can do kind of jumping back to what people are missing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, take a look at your kit. You know, what do you have a little go bag or whatever label you want to put on that? Um, that you keep all your things together with
3: Mm -hmm.
2: what does it look like you know is it well used is everything you know sharpened you know if you have a bunch of brand new gear i think it'd be a good idea to start getting it less new Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me yeah um,
1: i completely agree with that what we call that is like a shakedown you know where you're actually going to take your gear and you're going to utilize it shake down your gear come back after you go out into the woods and lay everything out and say, what did I use? What did I not use? Mm -hmm. You know, you might be packing stuff in there that you uh, you consistently never use. And if you go out into the woods, um, you know, over the course of several years and there's that, there's a couple objects in there that you just never use. Um, with the exception, of course, of first aid materials, Mm -hmm. um, you might want to consider chucking it. And, uh, if it's not serving you, if it's not serving any purpose that can lighten your load and maybe you can carry, you know, a little extra food, a little extra ration. So
0: what are some of the things that people or that either that you found that you ended up throwing out of your bag or that you see a lot of people eventually realizing, like, like the equivalent of the wire saw, like, what are some of the things that you see?
3: That's a good question.
2: yeah, I'd say the big old hunking knife with all the stuff on it.
0: <laughs> Get rid of that. <laughs> like the like survival yeah, knife. If you've with got a the... Rambo
1: knife, mm-hmm. yeah. If you've got a Rambo knife, that's that's not useful. A like if your knife is over uh, like five and a half inches, six inches long. If mm-hmm. it's bigger than that, that is not going to really serve any purpose for you. Like I said, a machete is a lighter weight. If you need a long blade for limbing or something, and if you're batoning wood you know, to break it up for, for a fire, mm-hmm. you don't need a super, super big knife for that. And that's going to just weigh you down. You're not going to carry it. You're going to leave it at camp when you need it the most, you know, w- heavy things get left behind and, and people forget that. Um, mm-hmm. if you can, if you can save weight and still be durable, do it.
0: Yeah. It's like realizing that with body armor, realizing that soldiers ditch the side plates and then like, I think some soldiers even ditch the black back plate, but I, I don't know whether that's machismo or not about like never running or something, you know? Um.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's been my experience, you know, like I've, I've spent time with my full loadout, you know, trying out my plate carrier, trying out my chest rig and things like that. And, you know, I've actually found that I I don't like wearing uh, body armor when I'm out in nature. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, it, it gets snagged on everything. It weighs you down. It keeps you from being qu- as quiet as you could be. And for me, you know, just wearing a chest rig that has the magazines, it has your compass, has your radio, it's got all your basic equipment. You move quick, you move fast, you move light, you move quiet. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it's been much more effective from my like lived experience of being out in the field with those different setups. Um, Body armor is something for me where the only time that I'd be wearing body armor is if I'm in like an urban environment Mm
3: -hmm. where
1: you're going to have concentrated alleys of fire you're gonna have concentrated uh choke points um and that's just my personal choice but that's again that's my my experience
2: yeah i would agree with and that's that. all
1: through wearing it you know
2: yeah yeah i'm not friends with body armor <laughs>
0: <laughs> i had some steel plate but, but, armor go ahead sorry
2: it's okay i was just gonna say but you know like epa says um if I found myself in a stronghold and you know we're not going anywhere, then I, I should be wanting it. Then,
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it's interesting to see what, like I the 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 first uh, plate carrier I got, I have steel plates made by them, the Red Star Defense, the the like leftist body armor maker, and I just don't wear mm-hmm. it. I like I just it's just too heavy, and I, I mean I don't wear it also because I don't do you know, this is not my, my primary skill set is not firearms and like community defense. Right. Um, But I like believe in being prepared. And so I believe in having gear to fit a variety of um, roles in a society. And I I believe in, you know, understanding how to use my gear and things like that. Right. So I would wear it and then I would just be like, I just don't want to fucking put this on. I just like, I don't know. It's, it's, and eventually now I have ceramic plates. Um, and I'm like, okay, I still don't want to put it on, but it's not like, no, you, I'm not like screaming at myself. Like, no, you can't make me put it on, you know? Um, but which yeah. is interesting though, because when I was, um, like when I was train hopping and stuff, I actually, I found that like, maybe it's cause I was 20. I just didn't care about extra weight in the same way. um, you know, I, I, I've i realized you know, when I look at someone's pack and like someone would be traveling and they have all of the lightest gear and like the ultra light hikers or something like that. And then I think about like, I think I've even told this story on this show before. I don't remember. Like my, my friend Pogo Dave, who has a fucking Pogo, I don't know, I haven't seen him in 15 or 20 years, but he was a train hopper with a Pogo stick and he had a giant steel Pogo stick that he just carried around. And he, <laughs> he lived out of his backpack for a very long time, Right. And he felt like it was worth the wait to include this thing. Right. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure that everything he didn't use, he would end up ditching and he used the pogo stick, which is, um, has no practical value at all.
1: I think with that, you know, I can, I can actually identify with that, you know, as, as an indigenous person, sometimes there's, there's that object that just is, you know, it's kind of your power object. It's something that, that, uh, that feeds you energy. It's a part of who you are. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's worth the uh, the extra, but I think the big issue with weight with Americans is that they want to be like green berets. You know, they look at what a green beret is wearing and they're like, okay, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm going to do. Or army Rangers, you know, I'm going to, you know, they're, they're survival experts. I'm going to have a loadout that looks like them and what people aren't looking at. And it's, it's, again, it's kind of that Eurocentric uh, kind of settler uh, gaze they're not looking at what the Taliban's wearing to successfully fight, which is very lightweight tone clothing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, chest rigs that just hold the magazines, hold their radio and uh, you know, sandals that are good for uh, uh, sandals and shoes that are good for moving fast. Yeah. um, In Rocky terrain. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where when you're looking at what your own loadout's going to look like, take all the romanticism out of it and just try to be as practical as possible. Um, indigenous people. I mean, if you look at the way that our ancestors were fighting, um, they were fighting slick and clean and fast. They, they didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of junk on them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, they mainly relied on things like caches and stores, um, that were pre hidden pre located to hold their supplies. So that way they're not rucking everything with them everywhere. Um, we as indigenous people and we as, you know, as leftists in general, in a broader context, we don't have the luxury of a massive logistic empire to, to back us up. And, you know, we don't have to carry these giant packs to uh, hold all of the things that are required by command. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) if we don't, if we're not required to, let's only carry what we need to. That makes sense. Right.
0: Yeah. And then also it's like, you have to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish. And like a lot of it could just be like, I just need to lay low. Like the gear you need to lay low is not full camo and tactical pants, you know? Like, um, I mean, maybe it is if your version of lay low is like literally like hide in a mountain somewhere,
1: but like if it's even then, even then, like when you look at, again, if you look at like the Afghan resistance Mm -hmm. or, you know, you look at uh, other types of movements like that, wearing civilian clothes is a big benefit because, it's harder to peg exactly what you're affiliated with, what your intentions are. If you're just wearing, you know, an earth tone flannel shirt and earth tone pants, mm-hmm. you could just be some guy who's, you know, <laughs> left the REI and is going hiking. You may not be considered a immediate threat by yeah people that are observing or, or other passerbys that are also out there, you know, in yeah. nature hiking or hunting.
2: I think one of the things too, that um, in Afghanistan, is the fighters could actually, you know, have the rifle right down at their feet and be looking right at the imperialist forces, and the imperialist forces weren't able to engage them, even if they knew who they were. You know, so you could take a good look at your opponents and your weapons right there, and the imperialists, but you know, with their own clutter and you know bogged down way of doing everything, can't do a thing. Mm. So there's that option too.
0: The The REI comment just like sticks with me because I, I think about like, yeah, there's so many reasons why like, take two people that you see in the woods and one person has like, maybe it's earth tone, but it's like clearly like the, you know, from a Patagonia catalog or something like that. And then yeah. someone who's like wearing a chest rig and you kind of know you have some conception of why that person is there, you know?
3: Um,
1: yeah. And that's why, like you can wear a Carhartt jacket over your chest rig mm-hmm. and you just look like any other good old boy up in the woods,
3: mm-hmm. you know, just hiking. Yeah.
1: Um, but you can unzip that real fast and have access to what's underneath it. Um, you can have a plain old backpack that has a, a, a folded down m four or something, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's doable. Yeah. And, that's the big thing is you want to not make contact. And if you do, you know, oh, hey, what are you doing out here? Oh, well, you know, I'm just scouting locations for the elk hunt this year. When mm-hmm. I get a tag, you know, if you've got that kind of casual story and you crack up a casual conversation with whoever you interact with, you're not going to raise suspicions. Mm-hmm. And that goes even you might deal with some cringy, cringy ass people. If you're like a native, you know, uh, white people love them, the native, mm-hmm. and uh, they could definitely you're gonna get those conversations. Oh yeah, my my uh, grandma, she was a <laughs> her husband was a, a great hunter, and he's got to put up with that. Uh huh. Track <laughs> up your good conversation. Be be congenial, and don't raise suspicions, and just go on your way, Um, or avoid contact. You know, don't don't look like you're avoiding contact, but. Mm-hmm. um, keep those interactions to a minimum, keep them friendly and you're just another outdoors person. You're not uh, a threat. You're not something that is going to elicit a call to the police department about some strange guy up in the woods.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I used to have the cops call to me constantly, but I always got away with it because I was a white kid, even if I was a dirty as shit, like backpack carrying white kid. Um, (laughs) And I definitely like learned really quick the game of like, What you need to say to like end police interactions, you know, like what you need to do to be like, oh, I swear I'm just like a, you know, like I'm not one of those dirty kids, you can just leave me alone or whatever. And like, like (laughs) playing into people's expectations of you is a really interesting, sometimes kind of dark thing, but worth doing.
1: Well, and external symbols are another important thing to think about, you know, as an indigenous person, mm-hmm. when you have interactions, like, you know, when I have interactions with Border Patrol or other things like that, one of the things that helps make those interactions go by faster and with less, uh, uh, less problems for me is having external identifiers that they can relate to have like, you know, a a popular college sports team have a a Browning or a Cabela's logo on your hat. You know, Mm -hmm. those kind of little external identifiers say, Hey, I'm, I'm like you, I'm an American, you know, (laughs) I'm yeehaw. Yeah. uh, America first, all that good stuff. (laughs) But you're not going to be getting into any deep, weird political places, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any, with that one, I knew people kept support our troops magnets on their cars back when that was the thing, or they'd keep them in the car, you know? (laughs) And then they would be like, it'd be setting up a tree sit somewhere or something, you know? And they'd be like, okay, we're, we're going to go set up this tree set time to put a support our troops magnet on our car. And
1: exactly. Yeah. It's those little tiny skills for survival. And like, when we talk about field skills, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not all about, you know, crafting a fire or making water or making shelter, you know, those are incredibly important things, but it's anything that leads to your survival and your continued freedom mm-hmm. and anything that you can do to maintain your state of being free and being alive. That's a survival skill. That's a field skill worth cultivating and worth, uh, exploring. That makes sense. Sure. I feel
2: like I want to talk about, um, like what, what you carry around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- did that make any sense what what you do every day you know like having a ladder in your pocket all the time having some kind of cutting edge you know a small blade or whatever it is that you can carry but having stuff on you all the time because you know if if you do get in trouble it, you know you're not it's not you probably won't have access to your full kit mm-hmm. at that moment you know it's going to be what you have in that moment that is going to get you through to maybe get t- to where your kit is or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, always having a, you know, a small knife or some kind of knife on you, um, a lighter, you know, always have a water bottle, you know, in your bag or whatever. I carry a courier bag around a lot.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, Oh yeah. I have a, it's not a full eye but I have some clotting agent and, uh, um, tourniquet and a pressure bandage in there you know and just stuff like that oh I have a little leather ne- needle and uh, some um, dental floss mm-hmm. that's in there you know so just stuff like that just having it like at hand all the time
0: for anyone who's listening dental floss makes great emergency thread basically for sewing it's very very tough thread
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah so I try to think in those terms too, you know, not just the, the big kit, you know, of -hmm. course have that stuff, but yeah.
1: Well, for any of the indigenous kids that are like listening to this podcast right now, like I just want, I want to let them know, you don't have to be survivor man or Les Stroud, like right off the banks, you know, you know, right off, right off the start, you can start, preparing and learning to survive with little things like that, like your everyday carry kit, getting yourself a pocket knife. If you never owned a pocket knife, that's a big first step. And that's a step towards, you know, honoring your ancestors and towards learning to survive. Learn how to safely use your knife. Learn how to sharpen it. That little tiny step goes a long way. And anybody can learn how to survive and prep. You know, like I said, in our communities, we've been denied a lot of that traditional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that, you can take those little baby steps and start working towards it. So when you hear us talking about going off in the woods and surviving for a week, um, that's not, that's not what you're going to start off doing. (laughs) And uh, you can work your way up to it, but anyone can learn how to survive. I know even if you're one of those people that, you know, like when I was younger, like to be on the internet and like watching lots of uh, TV and stuff like that. Well, that land connection is something that you can cultivate and you can build those survival skills are something that you can do. And it's, uh, it all starts with a single step. And if you don't have a pocket knife, that's always the good first step that I always recommend to people.
0: I had a Bulgarian friend who survived the, the fall of, um, you know, the Soviet influence on Bulgaria. And at one point she noticed that I was like walking around with, I didn't even have like a backpack, but I had enough of a bag in order to have like several bars of food, maybe a sandwich, like, And, uh, Mm -hmm. and a bottle of water and, and, you know, she's like, you have, you always have food and water on you. And I was like, yeah, yeah. When, what if I don't know when I'm going to find it again? And she was like, well, that's very Bulgarian of you. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I think it makes sense for like, um, any situation where you're like, well, I, I, I know that things can change, like my access to the grocery store can change my access to money can change, you know, at any point. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I think COVID-19 has been a wake up call for a lot of people. You know, a lot of, a lot of my friends here, you know, my, 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 friends are talking about, you know, survival for the first time, talking about growing food for the first time, you know, when you could go to the store and we had just bare shelves and we were not getting uh, commodities quite the same way that we were, um, that was kind of a, a wake up. And I think that people have started to see that, you know, the illusion of, of regular food and regular water and access to resources is an illusion that can be very swiftly broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we lurch further and further into fascism, uh, especially for communities of color, um, we're going to have to have those alternatives. So building that that infrastructure, building that dual power, building our own survival capabilities and also building those communities of uh, survival and resilience. Um, It's all something we can work on. Um, Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that
0: kind of covers most of what we, what we were talking about, talking about this time. And I'm, and for anyone who's listening you all are going to be, or some folks from IAF are going to be back on talking about a lot more specific skills in the future, I hope. And, um, but if, for anyone who's listening, who's interested in either um, getting involved um, if they're Indigenous or being supportive in other ways, like how can people get in touch with you or support your work or whatever?
1: Well, for um, the, uh, the, main, the main location to find us is, the, uh, is our Twitter account, which is um, at IAF underscore underscore FAI. And uh, that's that's a big source of information for us. We're also on uh, Facebook, um, and then we have some individual mutual aid projects. Which uh, Han, if you want to talk about, them. sure. Um, you can
2: find us at uh, Red Sleeves. It's capital R, then E D, um, capital S L E E, you know sleeves, and then A C A in capitals. So you can find our Twitter page that way. And then um, there are also a number of Indigenous Mutual Aid projects on our broader network at IndigenousMutualAid.org. And uh, mm, yeah, and then you can also go to um, at Action Media. I'm not sure if there's an underscore in between. I think there might be But, um, and if not there, that, and in, that indigenous com, that that's Klee uh, thing happening out in Flagstaff, Qatlani. and, uh,
1: website, um, you have IAF, uh, hyphen FAI.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and that website has our skills for revolutionary survival, uh, series, which we're continuing to add to, um, any indigenous people who'd like to contribute to that, you know, just hit us up on, uh, on Twitter, or uh, email us on our website and, uh, contribute your survival knowledge th- or just tell us things that you're interested in learning and uh, a big thing, but yeah, keep an eye out for those uh, survival articles as they come out. Um, very excited to be providing those resources for, uh, our future. Thank you so much for
0: listening If you enjoyed this podcast, I would first and foremost recommend that you look into the organizations run by our guests this week. And in particular, if you have the means, please consider donating. Red Sleeves has a monthly fundraiser that they use to maintain their mutual aid efforts. And you can find more information about that on their Twitter, which is at Red Sleeves ACA. If you'd like to support the show itself, Please do. Please like and subscribe, and tell your friends, and convince the algorithms that tell computers to tell other people what they should and shouldn't care about that they should listen to the show. Algorithms are weird. Um, and you can also support the show itself by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com/slash/MargaretKilday. In particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog and Kirk and Willow, Natalie, Sam. Christopher, Shane, and The Compound for making this episode and this show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you all soon, and I hope you do as well as you can, all things considered.